So the title of this new series is called Indivisible. And I know what some of you are thinking. You're thinking, oh, great. He's going to talk politics. This is the week I brought a friend, too. <laughs> and a pastor's going to go and make it weird. The only thing that could be worse is if he talked about money. Don't worry, that's not for two more Sundays. Uh, in this series, it's not so much about politics so much as it is about citizenship as we, as we head into a political season and as we live in a very partisan environment. One year from now, on November 3rd, 2020, we're going to have another presidential election. One year from today. And in between now and then, you and I, we are going to be assaulted with campaign ads and signs in people's front yards and not-so-passive-aggressive posts on Facebook and awkward conversations with your, with your, your liberal nephew, with your conservative cousin. And, and my, my task as your pastor is to help you understand all of that through a lens of faith is to equip you and I for a journey ahead whereby we might be engaged citizens, if you're here as a person of faith, be an engaged citizen who sees their engagement through the lens of faith. So that as we head into yet another political and partisan season where at the end of it, you and I have a big decision to make, we might have two things. We might have peace and purpose in this political season. Peace, knowing where our, our true hope is found, and spoiler alert, it's not in politics. And purpose, knowing clearly from Jesus how to navigate such, such nasty and divided seasons. Uh, our framework for this is going to be some phrases that you probably are very familiar with. They come from the Pledge of Allegiance. Uh, two phrases, one nation under God, and then the other phrase is liberty and justice for all. Well, let's start with that first phrase, one nation under God. How is it that a person of faith, a follower of Jesus, should view those words? How should they see those words? Because I would argue to you that a person of faith, a follower of Jesus, who seeks to live their life through a scriptural lens, should understand those words differently than, than a typical citizen. Now, now, before I dive into this, let me make one thing clear. I love, I love our country. I love our country. In fact, cue the flag. I love our country. I have a grandfather who fought in World War II. I have a younger brother who fought in Afghanistan. I love the fact that in this country we can gather like this and we can worship however we want. We can vote for whoever we want. We can fight the power. We can protest the leaders. Uh, we can protect our families. We can speak our minds. I love the fact that in this country we invented Netflix and the iPhone. And that in the cereal aisle at HEB, we have 300 different types of cereal. I love the fact that we are born into this country, that I've been born into this country. Uh, I believe quite clearly that it's a blessing from God to be an American and to be in this country. And I know many of you passionately share that belief. But, but here's something that we need to understand if you're here as a follower of Jesus, that while the scriptures clearly teach us that you are blessed if you get to live in a country like the United States where you experience certain freedoms, the scriptures are also really clear that while this country is a, is a blessing, that this country is simply one of many countries that God has established. That this is one of many countries that God loves that the United States, though it's a blessing to be a citizen here, that this is not God's special chosen nation, that we are not his city on a hill, 
as the United States. That's the people of God, not any particular country. That God has established or allowed any and all countries that exist, even Canada, for his divine purposes, in which he is active, through which he is working, and among which he will work to bring about his ultimate will in this world. And and that brings me to my first point. Christians, as citizens above all, should be quick to understand that, that though we are blessed to live in a country like this, that we are ultimately citizens of another kingdom. We are citizens of another kingdom. That though we're blessed to live in this country, we are citizens of another kingdom altogether. Altogether. What the Christian faith teaches, unlike other faiths, is that God is not seeking to establish an earthly kingdom, and that he doesn't choose any one nation to be his chosen nation, but instead, he he brings people to faith and makes them a part of his otherworldly kingdom. People of faith like you and me, though we are citizens of a particular country, we are first and foremost members and ambassadors from an entirely different world. We are members and ambassadors from an entirely different world, a heavenly nation, a kingdom that is not of this world. And if you don't believe me, let me give you a series of scriptures that shape how people of faith are to see themselves as citizens. So 2 Corinthians chapter 5 says this, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. Philippians 3, our citizenship ultimately is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Hebrews 13, we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. When you come to faith in Jesus, God forgives all of your sins, and he remakes you as a member, ultimately, of his eternal kingdom. And then he gives you a new job, a new task. Though you are a citizen of this country or another country, your ultimate job is to represent him and this nation, this otherworldly empire that he reigns and rules with unseen, unseen by human eyes, that he reigns and rules, represent it in this world, that you are here ultimately as a representative. You live here, but your true home, your true city is with him. As such, we are part of this country, but we're part of a larger country that crosses all borders. And while we live here, we have a larger calling to represent that nation that we are ultimately a part of well. It reminds me of of what we say as parents to our children when we drop them off at school or at a friend's house to stay the night. If you're anything like me, you say to your kids, okay, be good, Listen, listen to the teacher, listen to the parents, follow the rules, have fun, obey. And we say that because we understand that they have a calling when we drop them off at school or drop them off at a friend's house. Their calling is to be the best student or the best guest possible. But there's another reason why we say this. We say this because we also know that while they're there, they represent us. They carry with with them our family name. So they're not only there as students or guests, but they're also there as ambassadors of the Popovitz family. And what we're really saying when we say be good and follow the rules is please, please don't embarrass me. So here's what I want you to know. If you're here as a Christian, your primary vocation above citizen of this country is that of citizen of God's kingdom. That's your ultimate vocation. And your task here 
is to represent him well in and through your American citizenship, not just because he deserves it, which he does, but because he promises to work through you and do some of his otherworldly work through you as you represent him well in this place. Martin Luther, the great reformer, went so far as to say that Christians are little priests in whatever country in which they reside. Not priests in the Roman Catholic sense, but priests in the sense that you and I are agents of mercy and grace that comes from this other kingdom that we are ultimately members of in whatever kingdom we temporarily reside. Jesus even went so far as to say this. He gives us clear direction on how best to live out and represent his kingdom. In John chapter 13, he says, and they will know that you are my disciples by how you vote. Oh, wait, that's not what he says at all, is it? They will know that you are my disciples, members of my kingdom, by how you love, if you love one another. So here's the first thing I want to drill down for you. As you head into another political year, keep this in mind. If in my love for this nation, which is good, I am unkind, uncaring, impatient, and argumentative, then I am betraying my true nation which is mercy and grace-filled. And I am denying my true calling, which is to love. To love. Now, if you flip through the Bible and study what God says about your role as earthly citizens, you'll find things like this. Obey earthly authorities and pray for those in power. The Christian faith encourages Christian citizens to respect and to obey and to pray for wisdom for political leaders. Even if you don't particularly like that political leader, even if they're someone you can't stand, the scriptures say, look, there's a certain level of respect that you owe them and prayer support that you owe them. And remember, in the context of much of the scriptures when they're written, when these commands are given, the number one political issue for people of faith wasn't health care for all. It was their own survival under persecution. And yet, the scriptures say, show respect and obedience to your leaders and pray for their wisdom. But underlying that call for respect and prayer is an understanding that for Christians, that allegiance to earthly authorities reaches a ceiling. And this is my second point. Followers of Jesus understand the limits of our allegiance to earthly authorities. So Jesus was once asked about taxes. Specifically, he was asked, hey, do we have to pay taxes to a government that doesn't really recognize or walk in step with our God as people of faith? And Jesus famously said this. He said, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And when they heard it, the people marveled. So Jesus' point here is bigger than whether or not you have to listen to the IRS, which, by the way, you do. He says, there are certain things that belong to the earthly authorities. Obey the laws, pay your taxes, show them respect, pray for your leaders, do it. But there are certain things that only belong to God and keep those things reserved for him alone, which which causes us to ask the question, well, what are the things that only God deserves that we as Christian people should never give to our earthly authorities? There's three things. It's your hope for eternity, It's your roadmap to morality. And it is your ultimate loyalty. Eternity, your definition of morality, and your ultimate loyalty. So for example, I'm speaking for myself. I will not 
place my hope in government for things that they cannot deliver, namely a right relationship with God or a clear conscience as a broken man. Only God and Jesus Christ can solve those problems, no political leader. I will not blindly accept when people in authority tell me that what's always been considered right is now wrong and what's always been considered wrong is now right. They don't get to define my morality for me. That's God's territory. And in the rare circumstance, if it comes down to doing what my earthly leaders demand in opposition to what my God commands, I will follow my God. My eternity, my morality, and my ultimate loyalty. I will give to Caesar what is Caesar's. I will give to Trump what is Trump's. I will give to whoever comes after him whatever they need, except a handful of things. Except a handful of things. I will only give the things that belong to God to God. Because here's what I know. We are ultimately all under him. Christians of all people should be very careful about how much of their heart they give to political leaders, political parties, and political positions. Now, I'm not saying that you shouldn't have a candidate that you're excited about or that you shouldn't be engaged in this upcoming election season, as draining as it is. Uh, I am, and, and, and I hope that you are too. But here's what I know. You should be very wary of the fact that your heart and mine are idol factories that very quickly we can go from being excited about a candidate to worshiping a person or a party or a platform, believing, whether we articulate it or not, that in some way, shape, or form, they are the answer to our deepest needs. They are above certain levels of accountability, and anyone who opposes them, we are justified in demonizing. And when we come to that place, you are no longer an engaged citizen. You are a sinful Christian. When we get to that place, you no longer have a politician that you're excited about. You have an idol that you must repent of. So be careful. James Carville was a political strategist for Bill Clinton in his 1992 campaign. And he coined a phrase that has stuck around over the last 30 years or so that helped that campaign and future campaigns grasp what they believe mattered most to voters. And the famous phrase is this, it's the economy, stupid. And people still say that to this day. There's this belief that, according to most Americans, what matters most to them when they get engaged in politics is their pocketbook, is their bank account. That if as they go to the polls, they feel like this particular candidate is going to help them be financially secure, that ultimately that's going to be the tipping point and that's going to be the one that who, that's going to get their vote. And this is another point of departure for Christian people, Christian citizens, at least it should be, because for us, it's not necessarily about the economy, stupid. It's not necessarily about our own well-being. Ultimately, what people of faith are to be concerned about is the will of God. And that's my third point. The will of God. Now, that's a big, broad concept, and it's one that could be easily abused or misunderstood. I get it. But what I mean by that is this, that the driving factor for Christians in all seasons, at all times, in all decisions should be this. What does God want? I want what God wants and trying to discern that in their own life and also in their public life. In fact, Jesus tells us to pray these words. He says in Matthew 6, your kingdom come, your will be done. We're supposed to pray for that each and every day. And now you ask, well, what is God's will? Well, take a glance at the Beatitudes, Matthew chapter 5, and you'll get a sense of what matters most to God as Jesus articulates the, the values of the kingdom that he's bringing to earth. 
God's kingdom is about forgiveness for those who wronged you, faithfulness to the one you're married to, integrity in your promises, kindness to the poor, love to your enemies. These are the things that matter to God. And followers of Jesus are to love these things. And in their own personal lives, they're to try and live out these things. And as they try to discern which leader deserves their vote, they are to wrestle with who might best embody and help draw out these things. But be careful, because here's what you'll quickly discover, that neither party in our system has the corner or owns the market on these things. The truth is that biblical values and trying to discern the will of God doesn't fit, fit neatly into either party. Especially in a season that is increasingly polarized and partisan and where both parties are practicing something called package deal ethics. Meaning, unless you subscribe to our entire platform, you're a member of our party in name only. You have to take all of it or you can't be a part of any of it. And that's not fair. And it's especially troublesome for people who say, you know, my, my ultimate concern is the will of God. It's difficult for us. For example, the scriptures make it clear that people of faith are to care about things like racial inequality and the care of the poor and the most marginalized among us. Which when I say that to you, you immediately think, well, that sounds pretty liberal, pastor. Yeah. But the scriptures also make it clear that, for example, sex is designed to be enjoyed within the boundaries of marriage and is for the the creation and nurturing of a family. And you might say, well, that sounds pretty conservative. I know. What you'll find is that being concerned about the will of God in a political season means it doesn't fit cleanly into liberal and conservative categories. If you take this call seriously, you will never quite feel at home in American politics, and there's a reason for that. This is not your home. But there's good news. Followers of Jesus know this, that your preferred party doesn't have to be in power in order for God's will to be done. The primary place where God's will gets lived out is not in the halls of Congress, but in the homes of families like yours and mine. And that's what we know. God never says, influence the world by electing Christian leaders. Did you know that? I'm not saying we shouldn't, but he never says, go out there and elect Christian leaders. You know what he says? Influence the world by being Christian people. Loving, serving, forgiving, and caring. And I know that some of you are like, but Matt, the world is getting really, really scary, and we need quality leaders in place who care about the things of God. I don't disagree with you. I, I understand that. But here's what I know, and you should know as well. The world is going to continue to be a scary and scarier place, no matter who is in office, whether they're a Democrat or a Republican, until the day that Jesus comes back. And yes, we need the best possible leaders to help us navigate that darkness. But what we need even more so is we need men and women, children. We need churches and schools. We need families who through their love and their sacrifice and their generosity and their joy, they shine a bright light of hope into that darkness. That's what we need more than anything else. And as we head into a political season, my challenge for you is this. Every sentence you utter about what the folks in Washington or Austin or here in Houston should be doing, my challenge for you is to ask the same question of yourself. What am I doing to embody God's will? 
And I promise you that as you ask that question and wrestle with the answer, you will do more good in your own home than has ever been done in Washington, D.C. I've got one more for you. If we truly believe that all things are under God's sovereign rule, you and I, we will be, in this upcoming political season, we will be a disarmingly peaceful people. Ever met someone like that who is just disarmingly peaceful, like frustratingly chill in the face of no matter what's going on? Like everyone else is running around like crazy, like their hair's on fire, and this person's just like, hey, cool. It's going to be all right. And you want to shake them. Like, don't you understand what's at stake here? My assertion to you is that Christian people, especially in times like ours, we are to be the frustratingly peaceful, disarmingly peaceful people. And how can we be that way? Because here's what you and I know. Here's what we know. We know that no matter which party holds office, our God holds the world. And when we lose sight of that, that's when our hair gets on fire. And that's when we lose our minds. We do not lose hope. And our fear reaches a ceiling. Now, that doesn't mean that we should not be politically engaged. It doesn't mean that we don't get righteously angry in the face of injustice. It it doesn't mean we don't respond in times of emergency. Of course we do. We're called to be engaged citizens. But our fear reaches a ceiling. Ultimately, we know that no matter who's in power, our God holds the world and our God is good. You are to be a peaceful presence in this upcoming season. And my question for you is this. In this season that we're about to enter into, is the peace that you have knowing that God holds this world, is it reflected in the things that you post on social media, in the comments you leave on your cousin's Instagram account, in the conversations you have at work, in the way in which you talk about politics with your family? In a season where the intensity ramps up, do you inject a peaceful presence or do you increase the anxiety? Which of those two things do you think Jesus calls you to do? Be a peaceful presence. I was raised with the idea that there are two things you never discuss in polite company. Religion and politics. But what can I say? I'm a preacher everywhere I go. I break one of those two rules. People ask me, what do you do for a living? And I'm already breaking the rule. (laughs) So I figured today, why not break the other? I hope you see the necessity of the conversation. One year from today, we're going to have another election. And in the meantime, you and I, if you're here as a follower of Jesus, in the meantime, you and I, we have a choice. We we can check out of the nastiness altogether and just disengage from the entire process, but, but that's not right. Or we can dive into it as though it's the most important thing that's ever happened in the history of humanity and that life and death itself and our entire peaceful existence depends on how I vote and how my nephew votes. But that's not true. Nor is it helpful. We, St. Mark, we should embody a third way. Be engaged as a citizen, but ultimately know that you are an ambassador from another nation full of peace and perspective, giving your best to the process but reserving your heart for God. Along the way, seeking to discern his will, but above all, embodying it in your own home, in your workplace where real change happens. 
And above all, understanding that no matter who is elected to lead us here in Houston later this week or in this nation a year from now, no matter who is elected to lead us, there is but one gracious and merciful and good king over all of us. And let that shape how you live and move, work and play in this great country. Look, pick up the conversation next week. Let's pray.